Well, thank you, music team. Wonderful time to sing and worship. We're actually looking today at this very topic we just sang about. Whatever my God ordains is right. And I ask you this morning to turn to one of the most controversial chapters in the whole Bible, Romans chapter 9. To the world, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is the most controversial chapters in the Bible. To the Christian, Romans 8 and 9 is probably the most controversial sections in Scripture. Romans 9, today we're looking at the third message on this paragraph, Romans 9, 6 through 13. And today is God's sovereign promise, part three, divine election. Divine election. I told you that this is not hard to understand necessarily, it's just hard to accept. I think it's the, the unbeliever, Mark Twain, he said, it's not the, I don't understand the Bible, it's just I don't accept it, I don't believe it. And sometimes that's the case as Christians. We come to hard texts of Scripture, texts that challenge us, texts that really try to knock down our pride, and we don't always want to accept it. But when you do accept it, I think you'll find comfort. You'll find comfort that the Lord gives. And remember, He gave this for a reason. He gave all of the book of Romans, all of the Bible, for a purpose. To save and to sanctify. And this is helpful because, remember, Paul's making this argument about God's promises. He's the sovereign God, and he makes promises to Israel, and God will keep them. So let's start with Paul's argument that he introduces in verse 6. I'll read all the way down through 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed. But through Isaac your seed will be named. That is, the children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are considered as seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, so that the purpose of God according to his choice would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is a text about Israel. This is a text about salvation. What is taught here not only applies to those who believe that are from Israel, but this idea of election applies to every believer. Every believer the Bible says, has been chosen by God in eternity past. We will consider that today. Right now, though, Paul's not talking about Gentiles as much as he's focused on Israel. And remember, the question is, what about Israel? That's great, Paul. You told us in Romans 8, no one can lose their salvation. You told us in Romans 8 that God will persevere us till the end. You told us in Romans 8 that we can be assured that God will keep us eternally secure. And yet here we are in Paul's day and our day, and there's a lot of Jews who were promised these great promises in the Old Testament, and yet they're not all saved. Paul, doesn't that call into question what you just taught in Romans 8? Doesn't that call into question the gospel? Doesn't that call into question God himself? So Paul is going to address this, and he has started here in chapter 9. He will continue all the way through chapter 11. 
Early 9 is about divine election and how God saves individuals. Chapter 10 is about how we need to take the gospel to people like unbelieving Israelites. And chapter 11 is the future and how God will save all Israel someday. But in chapter 9, we're looking at this paragraph here, and it's, it's one unit of thought. It is Paul defending the fact that God's word never fails. Even though we may look around and not see as many Jewish believers as we think there should be, based on what's promised in the Old Testament, God knows what he's doing. God made promises. He keeps promises. And these promises are made to believing Israel. Look at verse 6. That's what he's saying there. Not all are true Israel. Not all are spiritual Israel. Within this whole nation of Israelites, Paul said, there are some who truly believe. That's true Israel. He's still talking about Israelites. He's not moved off to talk about Gentiles as well. He's saying within the nation of Israel, he says, even in Paul's day and today, there are some who do believe. That's proof right there that God's word hasn't failed. Because it's always been through faith. And the promises he made to Israel will come to pass before Christ comes back as a nation. But he's saving individuals right now. So that was in verse 6. I told you the, the whole paragraph breaks down with two defenses that the word of God never fails. One was not all are true Israel. And then we've been looking at 7 through 13. Because not all of Abraham's children are chosen. Not all of Abraham's children are chosen. It's God's sovereign choice. He decides who gets saved. He decides who inherits the promises through Abraham's family. And we saw in verse 7 this example that Paul brings up of Isaac. It's through Isaac that the promises pass. There was another son. There was Ishmael. There were many other sons that Abraham had with Keturah. But it was only through Isaac. God had called him. God had chosen him. God had decreed in eternity past that through Isaac the promises would come. And it was Isaac who would be saved. And so Paul brings up that example and he says basically that not one promise of God will fail. Look at Isaac. And now he continues with another example from the Old Testament. It happens to be today the grandsons of Abraham. And even between the twins... God chose one and not the other. Paul is, remember, he's defending this idea that God's promises still stand even right now. Yes, God's going to do something in the future with Israel, but right now even, Paul says, it's not as if the word of God hasn't failed. He says, basically, you're just forgetting, the person who objects here is just forgetting about God's divine election. God saves who he wants to save. God chooses who he wants to choose. And to bring up another example here in 10 through 13, he's going to now talk about Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. And he's going to open this idea of biblical doctrine here on election. And as you see, as we work down through the passage, we probably won't get through 13 today because it is so good So controversial. A whole sermon needs to be dedicated to verse 13. But as we move down through this passage, you'll see this doctrine of election coming out more and more. And so what is election? Before we jump in, what is election? MacArthur and Mayhew's biblical doctrine defines 
election as God's decision in choosing a special group or certain persons for salvation or service. So service would be the idea of national Israel. Most of the times in the New Testament, you're looking at salvation. Election pertains to salvation. But if we go to the Old Testament and we look at God choosing Israel, remember we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, God chose them as a nation to serve him, to worship him. They go on with the definition. This term is used especially of the predestination of the individual recipients of salvation. Salvation is what we're talking about. How does God save? What does he do to bring in those he chooses to save? The Bible speaks on these issues. So let's look now. Four teachings in this passage on divine election. Four teachings on divine election. Starting first of all in verse 10. We see election is not based on circumstances. Election is not based on circumstances. Some people think that God's choice is based on certain circumstances in their life. Maybe if you grew up in a Christian home, then it's those people who God chooses and they'll be saved. But those who grew up in pagan homes, some believe you can't be saved. Many will tell us, look, it's because you're born in America that you are a Christian. If you were born in a Muslim country, then you would just be a Muslim. So you're just whatever your culture is and your circumstances lead you to. Or they might say, if your life was easy growing up, well, of course you believe in God. Of course you're saved. Of course you think that you are elect because you had it easy growing up. And people who had it hard growing up, they have a different outlook on life. Or maybe it's rich families. That's what the Jews thought at the time. If you're wealthy, God has blessed you. You're obviously saved. You're obviously God's elect because you are wealthy. There are many churches who teach that today. It's called the prosperity gospel. That a sign that you're saved is your wealth. Or a sign that you have great faith is your wealth. Well, verse 10 really deflates that hot air balloon really fast. Really fast. Look at verse 10. And not only this, in addition to what he's already said about Isaac, not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. So in addition to, to Abraham and Sarah, there's another case here. After Isaac and all the way down now to Abraham's grandchildren, another case to examine regarding this fact that God does not save everyone who's descended from Abraham. You can't just claim to be a descendant of Abraham here, but Paul begins to take it one step further. Because someone might say, well, of course Isaac inherited the promises. Of course God chose Isaac. He was born of the free woman. But Ishmael, he was born of the slave woman. So it's obvious that God would choose Isaac based on his mother. They had two different mothers. Sure, they had the same father, But there was a difference in their circumstances. It was their mother that determined it. In other words, not God. But now Paul is going to advance the argument. And he's going to take this case of the twin grandsons of Abraham. Remember, Rebekah was barren, the Old Testament says. Rebekah was barren, just like Sarah. Genesis 25, 21. And Isaac entreated Yahweh on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And Yahweh was moved by his entreaty. So Rebekah, his wife, conceived. God miraculously is doing something. Anytime a barren woman shows up in Scripture, you know God's about to do something. God's about to act. God is about to do something. And he does something here by opening the womb so she can conceive twins. 
And it says, when she had conceived twins by one man. A literal translation goes into a little bit more detail. The literal translation of the words here is, by one sexual act, she conceived twins by one man. Rebecca's pregnancy was the result of one single instance of intimacy between a husband and wife. In other words, there's no way you can say these two had different fathers, these two had different circumstances, these two had anything different about them. Even the DNA itself is the same. The DNA contributors, we would say, are the same here. In the same instance, in the same moment, Rebecca conceived. He's focusing on conception because no one else even knew about it then. Only God would have known about it then. No one else knew. Before anyone else knew she was pregnant with twins, God knew. God had decreed it. God had planned it. God had already chosen Jacob. Until they come out and look slightly differently, there's nothing different about them that anyone can see. There's twins. They're inside Rebecca. They have the same parents. They're going to be twins. And God knew. He had said already that he would preserve his line, that he would bless Abraham, that through Abraham's line there would be one who would arise and bless all the families of the earth. We know that's Messiah. We know that he's talking about salvation as we read through Scripture there. Yes, there were covenant promises made to Abraham about the land. Yes, Abraham was promised all these descendants. But right now, it's not looking like a very big family. Through Isaac, one. And then the next one, Jacob, one. And yet, God had a wonderful plan. A wonderful plan for all of these descendants that would come from Jacob. Jacob, by the way, is also named Israel. And the whole nation would come from Jacob. But Jacob and Esau had the exact same circumstances. Think about it. I already mentioned the same father, the same mother, the same moment of conception, the same DNA, born at the same time, only seconds apart. There was nothing in their circumstances that a person could say, well, of course, God chose Jacob. Paul is building up to where he's going next. He's saying, look, their circumstances were exactly the same. In other words, God's election is not based on any situation that we perceive in our lives. We can't say, well, of course God saved me. You know, I was the best person growing up in my school. And I went to the best schools. And I was in the best family. And I went to the best church. We're going to look in the moment that God can take the worst sinner and make him a believer. Look at Paul. Paul had the best circumstances. But did God save him because of that? Did God save him because he was a Hebrew of Hebrews? No, he was killing Christians. Those are not good circumstances. If God's going to pick somebody, he's going to pick the person who's killing Christians? Today, if somebody was killing Christians, we would be praying that they would get taken out really quick and be sent to eternal punishment. And yet, Paul was saved, drastically changed, and went on to be this great apostle that we're now reading his letter. Well, Paul has something even bigger that he's going to talk about here in verse 11. This is the second point. Election is not based on works. And we don't struggle as much maybe with circumstances today. We think, okay, God can do what he wants. Whatever he ordains is right. We think circumstances don't matter. 
but works. Being a good person, that's where it's at, right? God saves those who are good. God saves those who work hard at it. The world believes such bad theology. The Bible says God saves his elect regardless of anything that a person would do. He chooses who he will save regardless of anything that they do. This is what the reformers called God's unconditional election. It's unconditional. It's not based on any conditions. It's unconditional. There are those who believe that election is conditional. That because God knows you're going to do certain things in your life, then he goes back and chooses the people who will do the right things and believe the right things. But this text really helps us see into the mind of God just a bit, just a fringe of God's attributes here and the way he works. Verse 11, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, anything, you can say, well, Esau was going to be a rascal. You know, he was going to come against Israel. He was going to clap for Babylon when they came and destroyed Jerusalem. Esau becomes the nation of Edom. But Paul says, before they were born and they had not done anything good or bad. Now, someone might say, well, Paul, God knew what they were going to do. Yeah, God knows all things. He never learned anything. God knows all things. He decrees all things that come to pass. He specifically says, though, in this statement to help us, they were not even born and had not done anything. So his election, his choice will not be based on those things. So many today teach about election and predestination as something that God looks forward in time. And that's how I learned it growing up. That's how I learned it even as a baby Christian. God looks forward to the corridors of time and he sees who will believe and he chooses them based on their belief. Paul says, before the twins were born and had not done anything good or bad. That would include faith. Yes, faith is important. Yes, he's been a whole chapter talking about faith and has been unwrapping it since chapter 4. But here he's going back before your faith, long before your faith, in eternity past, talking about God's choice, God's free and sovereign choice. Election occurs long before these two were born. Paul is arguing that God saves whoever he chooses. How could it be based on any good works? How could it be based on anything we do or believe? then it would be founded in us. We would be the basis for our election. Yes, Esau and his descendants would turn out to be God-haters. They would worship a false god. They would take the idea of Yahweh and twist it into a god that we know named Kosh. Not in the Bible, but we see historical records where they worshiped this twisted idea of Yahweh. They were God-haters. Yes, but Jacob was not perfect either, was he? He was no saint. Just read Genesis. God doesn't choose based on good or bad, though. Martin Luther said, For without a doubt, both sons were evil by the corruption of original sin. Remember in chapter 3 of Romans? No one is born good. No, not one. None are righteous. No, not one. Left to ourselves without God changing our heart. No one is good. We're all born in a sin. We're born with a sin nature. And we continue to sin until God changes us. And even then we go and still sin against God. And yet we've been redeemed though. Hopefully we sin less and grow and become sanctified. Neither of those reasons though, good or bad, 
is why God chose Jacob. It was not based on any good or bad that they would do after being born. Now, Paul tells us what it is based on. If you ever wonder, how does God choose? Why does God choose? Here it is right here. So that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. This is a purpose, a purpose statement even. The first two words, so that, tell us this is a purpose statement. And it's telling us God's purpose in doing this. The purpose of God choosing Jacob over Esau is stated right here. Now, it's not enough for a lot of people. We look at this and we say, that's not telling us a lot. We expected that God would say, well, I had all these wonderful plans for you. And maybe he does. We don't know. But this is all we're going to get. And a few other passages say the same thing here. So that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. Now, I'm looking at this verse, and I don't know what translation you have, but I don't, I don't see anything about me or you in there. It's just God. God's purpose, God's choice, God's word standing. Let's break it down. Purpose. First of all, purpose. We looked at this in Romans 8. It's prothesis. It means to set out beforehand. That which is planned or purposed in advance by God. That which he has decreed to happen. His purpose speaks of his eternal decree set forth in eternity past before the universe was created. Let's look at another usage of that back in Romans 8, 28. Now, this is a wonderful verse. We love this verse. But this, again, speaks of God's foreordination, God's election, God's choosing. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. How are we called? How are believers called? How are believers called divinely by God where he changes their heart and he brings them to him? Yes, it's through faith. That's the means. And we must exercise that. And Paul's going to talk about that in Romans 10. But what he's getting at here is it's according to God's purpose. He chooses. He decrees. It's his purpose for those who are called according to his purpose. Go with me to 2 Timothy. Hold your spot there in Romans and go to 2 Timothy. Here's another use of the same word here. Prothesis, which means God purposing beforehand. 2 Timothy 1.9. And it's important we do theology here. We do a, a quick study on these words to determine what do they mean. Not what do people say they mean, but what does the Bible in context say that they mean. 2 Timothy 1.9. God here is what he's talking about. God has saved us and called us. With a holy calling. That's the divine call. That's not the outward call of the gospel. Jesus does speak of that calling. Many are called, but few are chosen. But in the epistles, looking back on the cross of Christ and now taking the gospel out to others, speak of divine calling. God calling to the heart. God changing the heart. The Holy Spirit regenerating the heart. Second Timothy 1.9 God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works but according to his own purpose. Why did God choose me? And now I'm a believer because of that. But my neighbor is not. God's purpose. And grace, because the whole thing is an act of his grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. That's God's purpose. Now this other word here, choice, and the legacy standard version, your, your translation in Romans 9-11 might say election. It's the same word. This is the Greek word ekloge. It means to make a selection. 
It means election. It means to choose. If you put that together with God's purpose, what Paul is saying is that the process of election is how God brings about his purpose. God has a purpose. The Bible tells us to create a people for his own possession, a holy people that will dwell with him forever and ever on the new heavens, new earth. And here's how he does it, through election. He's decreed that out of all sinful humanity, that he would save some. Not because they're better than the others, because we're all sinners. The Bible says it's according to his purpose. That's all we're going to get. It's according to his purpose. He doesn't tell us any other reason than that. Let's go to Ephesians 1. And you see both this idea of election, predestination, and God's purpose all in Ephesians 1. Look at 1, starting in verse 3. We've got the same writer here, Paul, using the same Greek words. Now they're translated into English, but you'll see them here. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what the Father does in our salvation. Here's what he does. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Okay, what's the first spiritual blessing that Paul is going to look at? Just as he chose us in him. He chose us. The Father chose us, believers, in Christ. When? When we were conceived? No, before the foundation of the world, it says. Before the foundation of the world, before everything was created. We can't even say that was in time, right? We say eternity past, but what does that mean? Eternity just means forever. How do we go past in eternity? Paul just uses language we can understand. God uses language that we can understand before the foundation of the world. That we would be holy and blameless before him in love. How does he do that? By predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. He's talking about individuals here. Individual Christians that make up the Ephesian church. That make up this church. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself. Why? How? According to the good pleasure of his will. Why did God choose me? Good pleasure of his will. His will, he decided. Again, we're talking about the idea of purpose. It wasn't anything. We should get on our knees and say, it wasn't anything about us, God. It certainly wasn't anything we did good. The only thing we contributed to our salvation was our sin. You pat yourself on the back for your faith, but the Bible says God grants you that. He changed your heart, which means ultimately we're always praising who for our salvation? God. We can never end with ourselves. Yes, if you're a Christian, you had faith and you should have faith and you should continue to have faith. But ultimately it goes back to God. We can't pat ourselves on the back. We will proclaim the gospel. There's evangelistic groups going out from this church all throughout the month. The gospel is being proclaimed here today. The gospel is proclaimed in classes on Wednesday. There's no reason we can't take the gospel out just because God elects. In fact, who's the one who tells us to take the gospel out? God's word. God did. Who's the one who tells us he elects according to the pleasure of his will? Same God. Aren't they both in scripture? They are. They're both in Scripture, so we believe in election, we take the gospel. Because you don't know who's elect. You're supposed to sow the seed. Throw the seed out as wide as you can, and God will do the calling. You do what he says, which is to proclaim the truth. Tell people the truth. Tell people of Christ. Going back to 
Ephesians here. Look at verse 9 of chapter 1. Making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his good pleasure. Which he purposed in him. God's good pleasure. God's good pleasure he purposed in Christ. To save a people. Verse 11. In him we also have been made an inheritance. So in Christ We've been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Very similar to what we see in Romans, Romans 9-11. It's almost as if Paul wants to start off this letter to the Ephesians and right in the middle of Romans to remind Christians over and over, it's God's grace alone. It's God's sovereign choice. It's God that we praise for our salvation, not ourselves. You see, there's no way Jacob can be said to merit anything good that would make God liable to him for salvation. If we could earn our salvation, God would be on the hook, right? Well, God, we did all this great stuff. Now you have to save us. God's free. There's a lot of talk about man's free will, but the Bible always starts with God's free, sovereign choice. He's not bound to do it. He does it out of his love, out of his grace. It's his free choices that are being described here. Now notice the verb stand. Stand. God chose Jacob so that his purpose according to election would stand. God's promises will stand. God's sovereignty ensures it. Now this is contrasted with what happened, what Paul said in verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. It's not like God's word has fallen to the ground and failed when he made these covenant promises to Israel. Here's an example. Abraham, Isaac, now Jacob, Paul says. God's word stands. God's choice stands. God's process of election to fulfill his purpose stands firm. If God says it, it's true. If God says he will do it, he will do it. Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of Yahweh stands forever. The thoughts of his heart from generation to generation. Does God make a promise and it just lasts one generation? No, the psalmist says it lasts for generations, forever. Proverbs 19.21 Many thoughts are in a man's heart, but it is the counsel of Yahweh that will stand. We think all kinds of things. We come up with all kinds of things. No, it's God's word that stands. Isaiah 14.24 Yahweh of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have counseled, so it will stand. God's purpose, God's counsel will always stand. God does not change. He stands. He's firm. He's loving, but he is not mutable. He cannot be changed. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't flip back and forth. His purpose is good. His will is good. His election is loving. And what he says stands. Now just to remind us, once again, Paul says, not because of works here, still in Romans 9-11, not because of works, but because of him who calls. You know, sometimes my kids say, Dad, you just keep saying the same thing over and over in a sermon. And I say, well, if the Bible says it over and over different ways, that's all I can do is say the same thing over and over. Paul's just saying it a different way here. It's not anything they did, good or bad. It's not because of works, in other words. Once again, we're back to God. Once again, God's calling. 
effectual calling. It's God who calls. Not because of works. Works are opposed to God's calling here. Anything good or bad is opposed to God's election previously in this verse. There's contrast all throughout this passage. It is based on God himself. He's the sole foundation of the believer's salvation. Why do you have to keep telling us this, Paul? Because we're prideful. Even Christians were prideful. In fact, a lot of people, scholars have written on this, they don't want to believe what Paul is saying here because it might make us more prideful. And there are people who can get prideful. They're called cage stage Calvinists. They should be put in a cage for a couple of years when they learn about the doctrine of election because they're just going around shaking everybody up and getting angry and getting into arguments. You've got to cage them up for a little while because it's pride. Suddenly they learn something new and they're very puffed up. We're prideful. And God continues to beat down our pride with verses like this in the story here of how God is working to save Israel. This is by grace alone. It's by grace alone. Sola gratia. One of the five solas of the Reformation. Protestant churches used to believe all the solas of the Reformation. The five solas. God's glory alone. By, by scripture alone. Through faith alone. By God's grace alone. In Christ alone. And yet now, almost all of those are rejected in many Protestant churches. It's all about what God is doing here. Not based on our works. If Paul wanted to add something in here about faith and say, you know, it's not by works, but it's by faith that God elects. No, the Bible never says it's by faith that God elects. It's by faith that we're justified. Chapter 3, chapter 4 of Romans. It's through faith that we receive the righteousness of, of Christ, and he removes the sin from our account. But when it comes to election, that begins and ends with God. It's not based on us. Yes, if we're elect, that means in time we will have faith when God calls. But Paul doesn't found God's election in our faith. Number three, election is not based on the world's methods. So the first one was circumstances. It's not based on circumstances. The second one had to do with anything good or bad. had to do with works. That's probably where most of modern Christianity struggles with, this idea of works versus God's election. But sometimes this one comes up as well. Election, though, is not based on the world's methods. Verse 12, cultural standards and systems have no effect on God's predestination and election. Sometimes people think, I've got the best scheme in the world to bring people to Christ. I've got the best additives that I could put into worship or an evangelistic event or a new way to present the gospel that people accept. And by doing that, more people will come to Christ and I will then help with God electing them when they're saved. There's so much backward about that. But that is sometimes how many of us did think and some still do in Christianity. But look at verse 12. It was said to her, Rebecca, this comes from Genesis 25, 23, the older will serve the younger. Now the, the ancient, ancient custom, until real recently in history, the oldest receives the inheritance. So if God made a promise to Abraham and that went to 
Isaac because God said, now it should go to Esau. Esau's the older one by a few seconds. A few seconds. And so for Isaac's son, everyone would expect them to follow those customs. Today, we break cultural standards. We don't care. Back then, you break cultural standards, you're really bad. You're maybe in trouble with the local governments if you're under a government. You are supposed to stick to the customs, to the standards. And even then, it would look bad on your family. It would look bad on your clan. Esau should have received everything. The land promises, the descendant promises, and the salvation promises. But after Rebekah conceived, the two children are struggling inside of her, and she's worried, so God spoke to her. And he said, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. It's backwards here, according to the world standards. Esau's older, but he's going to serve, submit to the younger one, Jacob. This is opposite than the standards of that day. This is opposite than what people would expect. So the only way this would come about is because of God's grace. First of all, how could Rebecca even conceive she's barren? That must be God. And how could this get turned around? Because it's opposite than what people would expect in that day, even the parents. And he has to tell her, the older is going to serve the younger. This is God speaking. This is his choice. It's not based on the standards of the world. It's not based on cultural standards. You can't say, well, Paul's only writing this in Romans because in that day they would understand the election and accept it. But today we don't understand it. So we got to change this verse and its meaning. No, this is one little part of a verse here. And Paul's saying this is proof of God's election. What he quotes right here and puts from the Old Testament now into the New. Right here in 12, the older shall serve the younger. That's proof, he says, of God's election. God is choosing from Abraham's descendants. He is choosing. He is making a choice right on down the line. So we shouldn't expect, because all Jews aren't saved today, that God has somehow abandoned his promises. He's still keeping them. Of course he is. God has done it. Let's look at some cultural standards today that we sometimes think. Go to 1 Corinthians 1. This is a parallel, I think, to what Paul is saying here. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 26. Maybe we think God should save according to the world standards or cultural standards. But Paul says, consider your calling. Again, that's God's divine calling. That's God saving us. That's God changing our hearts. That's God calling us to live holy lives to Him. For consider your calling, brothers. There were not many wise according to the flesh. He's talking about us. We weren't very smart, according to the world, before God saved us. Some of us still struggle even after God saves us. Not many wise, according to the flesh. Not many mighty. I wasn't powerful. Were you some sort of powerful broker in the world that could get things done and had made all this money and that God should give you salvation? Not many wise. Not many powerful, according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. We're the foolish things. We're the foolish things in this verse. There we are right there. Not, not God forcing to choose us because of something we did. We're the foolish things of the world. And he chose us 
to shame the wise. And God has chosen weak things. That's us. We think we're really strong, but we're only strong now in the Lord because of him. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world. That's us. Base things. We were sinful. We were base. We were evil. God chose us. If you're a believer here today, the despised God has chosen. Not just the outcasts of society, but, but the people that are despised the most today in this world. Who do you think those are? Christians. They're being killed. The things that are not. We were nothing. We were not even one of these things. We're just not. So that he may abolish the things that are. So that no flesh may boast before God. That's what it's about. Not boasting. We can't boast. We didn't do it. We can't boast about it. That's why we sing these hymns that still, the old hymns that still have things like such a worm as I. Will you pursue thy worm to death? Yeah, you can go overboard with that kind of talk, of course. Like Jacob's friends, you can go too far. But it's important sometimes just to remember we're but dust. And we wouldn't exist if it wasn't for God. And we wouldn't be saved if it wasn't for God's sovereign choice. Well, let's look real quickly at number four. And this will be mostly covered in next week's sermon. Not what I'm about to say. I'll open up the passage and we'll talk about election more in next week's sermon because there's so much here. Elections based on God's love. Elections based on God's love. Verse 13. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now Paul's told us what election of Jacob was not based on. Now he's telling us what it is based on. God's purpose, yes. But he says, Jacob, I loved. That's a choice God made to love Jacob. Look at Romans 8, 29. Where does this love come into the scheme? Where does it come into the order of salvation? The ordo salutis. Romans 8, 29. Because those whom he foreknew. So that's the first. Paul's making this golden chain. And you remember when I went through it, I said there's five links here to the golden chain. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification. So the first thing is foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is what? Is that God looking forward into time? No. You study this word. You look at the idea of knowledge in Scripture. And knowledge means knowing someone closely. Having a relationship. Knowledge pertains to relationship. Adam knew his wife and they conceived a son. Mary had not yet known her husband when the Holy Spirit came over her and gave her Jesus in the womb. Knowledge is about an intimate relationship. We see that a lot in the Old Testament with Yahweh speaking, God himself speaking of his relationship with Israel. So foreknowing is choosing to love. It's for loved is how I like to translate it. You can choose differently if you want, but I think that carries the point across. Go back and listen to my sermon on that if you have questions and have joined us since then. So because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. It's based on his choice, and his choice is to select those that he puts his love on, his saving love. He has a love for the whole world. He puts rain, and he, he grows crops for the good and the evil, the just and the unjust. There's common grace, upon the whole world from God. But those who were his friends, like Abraham, a friend of God, those who Jesus says know him, but there are some who never knew him, even though they claim to, 
Those are the ones that there's a loving relationship. So foreknowledge there is not looking forward in time and learning who would believe. That would mean God's changing. God's learning. No, he's never learned anything. He knows all things. It is God who chooses because he has foreloved that person. He says, Jacob, I loved. And see, we think that's perfectly normal. But Esau, I hated. What is going on with that statement? That's why we need next week's sermon to open that up. And we need to talk about this idea that some people say he's talking about two nations here. He's not. He's talking about individuals. But I need to show you that he's talking about individuals. I need to show you right there in the context that he's talking about individual salvation, not the nation of Israel versus the nation of Edom. Jacob I loved. We're just focusing on that today. God's choice in election. God chose Jacob. And he, I'll just tell you, rejected Esau. He rejected him. Not loved less. I'll show you next week. But he just rejected him. He chose one. And that means he passed over another. If there's two and he chooses one, that means he didn't choose the other. Rejection. Some people call it reprobation. Augustine said here about election, he says, God does not choose us because we believe, but that we may believe. God chose us so that we may believe. If you're like me and you have questions about this, Back when I was a new believer, I had many questions. And I'll tell you how I learned about this doctrine. I usually tell this in the new members class, but we had some folks over for dinner at our church. We had just moved to Kerrville, and they came over. We were going to a little church there, and they said, what other churches did you guys go to before you ended up at our little Baptist church? And I said, well, we went to this place called Kerrville Bible Church. Oh, they said, that's, that's a good thing you didn't stick around there. I said, Why? I didn't know anything. I came from the seeker movement, you know, 10,000 people there on Sunday. I didn't know anything about theology. They said, well, because that's a cult. I said, really? That's pretty scary. I definitely don't want to take my family where there's a cult activating in this area. And he said, this guy said to me, he says, yeah, they believe in election. I didn't know what that was. I just said, hmm, that sounds bad. I'd been a Christian six or seven years. So I, you know, like everybody else, I go to Google. Election. Christian election, all these verses, right? R.C. Sproul comes up, MacArthur, John Piper. Oh, man, there's a lot of people who believe this. There's a cult out there. I thought John MacArthur was a great guy. So I start listening. I start looking at the verses, really. I had a a business at home, so I had time to do this for two weeks. I just look at all the verses. I'm going to prove this thing wrong. I'm going to prove it wrong. For the first time in seven years, I'm studying the Bible. I'm getting into the passages. I'm looking at the context. I'm thinking, wow, I can't prove this wrong. It's right there. It's actually mentioned in the Bible. The word election and predestination, it's in the Bible multiple times. Yes, I'm going to have to believe this. So then I go to my wife and I said, you know, for a while we've, we've not been taught this, but I don't know what you're going to think about this. She said, oh, I totally see it. Thank you for showing me. It's like, wow, she caught on like that. It took me two weeks of resisting, trying to prove it wrong with all these other verses. Now you may have questions. You may have questions. You may say, well, that's not fair. Election is not fair. Well, Paul's going to address that. He's going to address that when we get to 9.14. What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? May it never be. Then he's going to address that objection. The it's not fair idea. If if it's not fair, then God is unrighteous. And Paul's going to address that. And then you might say, well, this goes against free will. This goes against free will because we're just robots then. We just do whatever. He's going to address that in verse 19 and following. He will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who resists his will? 
And he says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? So he's going to address that. Stick around a few weeks if you're new. We'll get into those objections. We'll ex- I'll explain that, Lord willing. Next week, we'll pick up, though, in verse 13. I just want to open up, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. If you're an unbeliever here today, you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior, this message was for Christians. This is, we've gone through the gate. We've gone through that wicked gate that Pilgrim's Progress talks about, and we're looking back, and it talks about election on the gate. It says the elect, only the elect to come through. If you're an unbeliever, you're on the other side of the gate, and you see all who come to me will be saved through faith. That's Romans 10. Have faith. If you confess, if you confess that the Lord is your Savior, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, then you will be saved. This message of election is a comfort to the believer. If you're not a believer, come to Christ so you can rejoice with the rest of us about these great truths taught in Scripture. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to accept all that is in your word. And when you tell us it is true and when you tell us it is right and when you give us a glimpse, just a glimpse into your mind, just a sliver of your purpose, help us to rejoice over that to praise you, to be glad, to be comforted that we have a Lord who's going to keep us, who's chosen us in eternity past, and we were nothing, and yet you saved us. So we thank you for that this morning. Help us, O Lord, to rejoice and tell that from the rooftops that you are the only Savior, and through Christ your Son we can have eternal salvation. It's in his name we do pray. Amen.